fast asleep. Thank you for joining us. We are here, ready to tuck you in. Or, in the case of one recent listener, get you through your marathon training. Wow, good for you. So, apparently, as I understand it, a few runners like fast asleep while training for long distance. Music can be erratic, I'm told, with tempo changes and, well, Raphael has told us he likes getting involved in a story. It helps him forget the miles ahead. Okay, Raphael, I think you're going to like today's episode. It's long enough. Oh, and you're going to love the ending. It's from Graham Greene, regarded as one of the finest writers of the 20th century for his literary fiction, but also for his thrillers. And it's a thriller that we have on tap for you today. After publishing his very first novel, The Man Within, Graham Greene was easily able to work full-time as a novelist. The critical reception of that first novel was that enthusiastic. Now, in the midst of this very successful writing career, Green managed to travel frequently and often to the world's wildest, most remote locations. But get this. In 1941, he traveled his way into an MI6 recruitment. That's the Foreign Intelligence Service for the United Kingdom. Yes, he was a spy along with his sister, Elizabeth. No, not that Elizabeth. Until 1944. So, 67 years of writing. Novels, plays, screenplays, and fortunately, short stories. So get ready for a spine-chilling short story. Right now. Tuck in, everybody. For Graham Greene's The Basement Room. Part One When the front door had shut the two of them out, and the butler, Baines, had turned back into the dark and heavy hall. Philip began to live. He stood in front of the nursery door, listening until he heard the engine of the taxi die out along the street. His parents were safely gone for a fortnight's holiday. Two weeks. He was between nurses, one dismissed, and the other not arrived. He was alone in the great Belgravia house. Now that's in an expensive area of London near Buckingham Palace. He was there with Baines and Mrs. Baines. He could go 
anywhere, even through the green baize door. Now, that's the dividing line between the servant and the master quarters. He could go to the pantry or down the stairs to the basement living room. He felt a happy stranger in his home because he could go into any room and all the rooms were empty. You could only guess who had once occupied them. The rack of pipes in the smoking room beside the elephant tusks. The carved wood tobacco jar. In the bedroom, the pink hangings and the pale perfumes. And three-quarters finished jars of cream, which Mrs. Baines had not yet cleared away for her own use. The high glaze on the never-opened piano in the drawing room, the china clock, the silly little tables, and the silver. Mm, but here, Mrs. Baines was already busy, pulling down the curtains, covering the chairs in dust sheets. Be off out of here, Master Philip. And she looked at him with her peevish eyes while she moved round, getting everything in order, meticulous and loveless, and doing her duty. Philip Lane went downstairs and pushed at the baize door. He looked into the pantry, but Baines was not there. Then he set foot for the first time on the stairs to the basement. Again, he had the sense, this is life. All his seven nursery years vibrated with the strange, the new experience. His crowded brain was like a city which feels the earth tremble at a distant earthquake shock. He was apprehensive, but he was happier than he had ever been. Everything was more important than before. Baines was reading a newspaper in his shirt sleeves. He said, Oh, come in, Phil, and make yourself at home. Wait a moment, and I'll do the honors. And going to a white, cleaned cupboard, he brought out a bottle of ginger beer and half a Dundee cake. Half past eleven in the morning, Baines said. It's opening time, my boy. And he cut the cake and poured out the ginger beer. He was more genial than Philip had ever known him, more at ease, a man in his own home. Shall I call Mrs. Baines? Philip asked, and he was glad when Baines said no. She was busy, she liked to be busy, so why interfere with her pleasure? A spot of drink at half past eleven, Baines said, pouring himself out a glass of ginger beer. Gives an appetite for chop, and does no man any harm. A chop? Philip asked. Old coasters, Baines said. Old coasters call it chop. That's food. But it's not a chop. Well, it might be, you know, if cooked with palm oil, and then some pawpaw fruit to follow. Philip looked out of the basement window, at the dry stone yard, the ash can, and the legs 
going up and down the railings. Was it hot there? Oh, you never felt such a heat. Not a nice heat, mind, like you get in the park on a day like this. Wet, Bane said. Corruption. He cut himself a slice of cake. Smelling of rot, Bane said, rolling his eyes round the small basement room, from clean cupboard to clean cupboard, the sense of bareness, of nowhere to hide a man's secrets. Ah, with an air of regret for something lost, he took a long draught of ginger beer. Why did father live out there? Mm, it was his job, Bane said. Same as this is mine now. And it was mine then, too. Ah, oh, it was a man's job. You wouldn't believe it now, but I've had forty under me doing what I told them to. Why did you leave? Well, I married Mrs. Baines. Philip took the slice of Dundee cake in his hand and munched it round the room. He felt very old, independent, and judicial. He was aware that Baines was talking to him as man to man. He never called him Master Philip, as Mrs. Baines did, who was servile, but uh, she was mostly authoritative. Baines had seen the world. He had seen beyond the railings. He sat there over his ginger pop with the resigned dignity of an exile. Baines didn't complain. He had chosen his fate, and if his fate was Mrs. Baines, he had only himself to blame. But today, the house was almost empty, and Mrs. Baines was upstairs, and there was nothing to do. He allowed himself a little acidity. Uh, I'd go back tomorrow, if I had the chance. Did you ever shoot anybody? Oh, I never had any call to shoot, Baines said. Of course, I carried a gun. Eating between meals, <gasps> Mrs. Baines said. What would your mother say, Master Philip? She came down the stairs into the basement, her hands full of pots of cream and salve, tubes of grease and paste. You oughtn't to encourage him, Baines, she said, sitting down in a wicker armchair and screwing up her small, ill-humored eyes at the coaty lipstick, ponds, cream, the Leichner rouge and Cyclax powder, and Elizabeth Arden astringent. She threw them one by one into the waste paper basket. She saved only the cold cream. Tell the boy stories, she said. Go along to the nursery, Master Philip, while I get lunch. Philip climbed the stairs to the baize door. He heard Mrs. Bain's voice like the voice in a nightmare when the small price light had guttered in the saucer and the curtains move. 
It was sharp and shrill and full of malice, louder than people ought to speak, exposed. Sick to death of your ways, Baines, spoiling the boy. Time you did some work about the house. But he couldn't hear what Baines said in reply. He pushed open the bay's door, came up like a small earth animal in his gray flannel shorts, into a wash of sunlight on a parquet floor, the gleam of mirrors dusted and polished and beautified by Mrs. Baines. Something broke downstairs, and Philip sadly mounted the stairs to the nursery. He pitied Baines. It occurred to him how happily they could live together in the empty house if Mrs. Baines were called away. He didn't want to play with his Meccano sets, like erector sets. He wouldn't take out his train or his soldiers. He sat at the table with his chin on his hands. This is life. And suddenly he felt responsible for Baines, as if he were the master of the house, and Baines, an aging servant who deserved to be cared for. There was not much one could do, he decided, at least, to be good. He was not surprised when Mrs. Baines was agreeable at lunch. He was used to her changes. Now it was another helping of meat, Master Philip, or Master Philip, a little more of this nice pudding. It was a pudding he liked, queen's pudding with a perfect meringue. But he wouldn't eat a second helping, lest she might count that a victory. She was the kind of woman who thought that any injustice could be counterbalanced by something good to eat. Oh, she was sour. But she liked making sweet things. One never had to complain of a lack of jam or plums. She ate well herself and added soft sugar to the meringue and the strawberry jam. The half-light through the basement window set the motes moving above her pale hair like dust as she sifted the sugar and Baines crouched over his plate, saying nothing. Again, Philip felt responsibility. Baines had looked forward to this, and Baines was disappointed. Everything was spoilt. The sensation of disappointment was one which Philip could share. He could understand better than anyone this grief. Something hoped for, not happening. Something promised, not fulfilled. Something exciting, which turned dull. Baines, he said, will you take me for a walk this afternoon? No, Mrs. Baines said. No. <laughs> that he won't, not with all the silver to clean. Oh, there's a fortnight to do it in, Baines said. 
Work first, pleasure afterward. Mrs. Baines helped herself to some more meringue. Baines put down his spoon and fork and pushed his plate away. Blast, he said. Temper, Mrs. Baines said. Temper. Don't you go breaking any more things, Baines. And I won't have you swearing in front of the boy. Master Philip, if you've finished, you can get down. She skinned the rest of the meringue off the pudding. I want to go for a walk, Philip said. You'll go and have a rest. I want to go for a walk. Master Philip, she got up from the table, leaving her meringue unfinished and came towards him, thin, menacing, dusty in the basement room. Master Philip, you do just as you're told. She took him by the arm and squeezed it. She watched him with a joyless, passionate glitter. And above her head, the feet of the typists trudged back to the Victoria offices after the lunch interval. Why shouldn't I go for a walk? But he weakened. He was scared and ashamed of being scared. This was life. A strange passion he couldn't understand moving in the basement room. He saw a small pile of broken glass swept into a corner by the waste paper basket. He looked at Baines for help and only intercepted hate, the sad, hopeless hate of something behind bars. Why shouldn't I? He repeated. Master Philip, Mrs. Baines said, you've got to do as you're told. You mustn't think just because your father's away, there's nobody here to... You wouldn't dare, Philip cried, and was startled by Bain's low interjection. There's nothing she wouldn't dare. I hate you, Philip said to Mrs. Baines. He pulled away from her and ran to the door, but she was there before him. She was old, but she was quick. Master Philip, she said, you'll say you're sorry. She stood in front of the door, quivering with excitement. What would your father do if he heard you say that? She put a hand out to seize him, dry and white with constant soda. The nails cut to the quick, but he backed away and put the table between them, and suddenly, to his surprise, she smiled. She became again as servile as she had been arrogant. Well, get along with you, Master Philip, she said, with glee. I see I'm going to have my hands full till your father and mother come back. She left the door unguarded, and when he passed her, she slapped him playfully. I've got too much to do today to trouble about you. I haven't covered half the chairs. And suddenly, even the upper part of the house became unbearable to him as he thought of Mrs. Baines moving around, shrouding the sofas, laying out the dust sheets. So, so, he wouldn't go upstairs.
to get his cap, but walked straight out across the shining hall into the street. And again, as he looked this way and looked that way, it was life he was in the middle of. sugar cakes in the window on a paper doily, the ham, the slab of mauve sausage, the wasps driving like small torpedoes across the pane caught Philip's attention. Oh, his feet were tired by pavements. He had been afraid to cross the road, had simply walked first in one direction, then in the other. He was nearly home now. The square was at the end of the street. This was a shabby outpost of Pimlico, and he smudged the pane with his nose, looking for sweets, and saw, between the cakes and ham, a different Baines. <laughs> he hardly recognized the bulbous eyes, the bald forehead. This was a happy, bold, and buccaneering Baines, even though it was, when you looked closer, a desperate Baines. Now, Philip had never seen the girl, but he remembered Baines had a niece. Oh, she was thin and drawn, and she wore a white Macintosh. She meant nothing to Philip. She belonged to a world about which he knew nothing at all. He couldn't make up stories about her as he could make them up about withered Sir Hubert Reed, the permanent secretary, about Mrs. Winstudley, who came once a year from Penn Stanley in Suffolk with a green umbrella and an enormous black handbag, as he could make them up about the upper servants in all the houses where he went to tea and games. Hmm, she just didn't belong. He thought of mermaids and Undine, but she didn't belong there either, nor of the adventures of Emile, nor to the Bastables. She sat there looking at an iced pink cake in the detachment and mystery of, well, the completely disinherited looking at the half-used pots of powder which Baines had set out on the marble-topped table between them. Baines was urging, hoping, entreating, commanding, and the girl looked at the tea and the china pots and cried. Baines passed his handkerchief across the table, but she wouldn't wipe her eyes. She screwed it in her palm and let the tears run down. Wouldn't do anything, wouldn't speak, would only put up a silent resistance to what 
she dreaded and wanted and refused to listen to at any price. The two brains battled over the teacups, loving each other. And there came to Philip, outside, beyond the ham and wasps and dusty Pimlico pane, a confused indication of the struggle. He was inquisitive, and he didn't understand, and he wanted to know. He went and stood in the doorway to see better. He was less sheltered than he had ever been. Other people's lives, for the first time, touched and pressed and molded. He would never escape that scene. Oh, in a week, he had forgotten it, but it conditioned his career, the long austerity of his life. When he was dying, rich and alone, it was said that he asked, Who is she? Baines had won. He was cocky, and the girl was happy. She wiped her face. She opened a pot of powder, and their fingers touched across the table. It occurred to Philip that it might be amusing to imitate Mrs. Baines' voice and to call Baines to him from the door. His voice shriveled them. You couldn't describe it in any other way. It made them smaller. They weren't together anymore. Baines was the first to recover and trace the voice. But that didn't make things as they were. Oh, the sawdust was spilled out of the afternoon. Nothing you did could mend it. And Philip was scared. I didn't mean... He wanted to say that he loved Baines, that he had only wanted to laugh at Mrs. Baines, but he had discovered you couldn't laugh at Mrs. Baines. She wasn't Sir Hubert Reed, who used to steal nibs and carried a pen wiper in his pocket. She wasn't Mrs. Wince Dudley. She was darkness. When the nightlight went out in a draft, she was the frozen blocks of earth he had seen one winter in a graveyard when someone said, well, they need an electric drill. She was the flowers gone bad and smelling in the little closet room at Penn Stanley. Oh, there was nothing to laugh about. You had to endure her when she was there and forget about her quickly when she was away. Suppress the thought of her, ram it down deep. Bain said, Oh, it's only Phil, and beckoned him in and gave him the pink iced cake the girl didn't want. But the afternoon was broken. The cake was like a piece of dry bread in the throat. The girl left them at once. Well, she even forgot to take the powder. 
like a blunt icicle in her white Macintosh. She stood in the doorway with her back to them and then melted into the afternoon. Who is she? Philip asked. Is she your niece? Oh, oh yes, Bangs said. That's who she is. She's my niece. And poured the last drops of water onto the coarse black leaves in the teapot. May as well have another cup, Baines said. The cup that cheers, he said, hopelessly, watching the bitter black fluid drain out of the spout. Have a glass of ginger pop, Phil? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Baines. Oh, it's not your fault, Phil. Why, I could really believe it wasn't you at all, but her. Oh, she creeps in everywhere. He fished two leaves out of his cup and laid them on the back of his hand, a thin, soft flake and a hard stalk. He beat them with his hand today, and the stalk detached itself. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But the flake wouldn't come stayed where it was, drying under his blows, with a resistance you wouldn't believe it to possess. Uh, the tough one wins, Bane said. He got up and paid the bill, and out they went into the street, and Bane said, I, I don't ask you to say what isn't true, Phil, but you needn't actually tell Mrs. Baines you met us here. Of course not, Philip said, and catching something of Sir Hubert Reed's manner, I understand, Baines. But he didn't understand a thing. He was caught up in other people's darkness. Ah, oh, it, was, it was stupid, Baines said, so near home, but I hadn't time to think. You see, I... I'd got to see her. I haven't time to spare, Bane said. I'm not young. I've... I've got to see that she's all right. Of course you have, Baines. Now, Mrs. Baines will get it out of you, if she can. You can trust me, Baines, Philip said in a dry, important read voice, and then, oh, look out, she's at the window watching, and there indeed she was, looking at them between the lace curtains from the basement room, speculating. Need we go in, Baines? Philip asked, cold lying heavy on his stomach like too much pudding. He clutched Baines' arm. Careful, Baines said softly. Careful. But need we go in, Baines? It's early. Take me for a walk in the park. Uh, better not. But but I'm frightened, Baines. Oh, now you haven't any cause, Baines said. Nothing's going to hurt you. You just run along upstairs to the nursery. I'll go down by the area and talk to Mrs. Baines. But he stood, hesitating, at the top of the stone steps, pretending not to see her where she watched 
between the curtains. Now, in the front door, Phil, and up the stairs. Philip didn't linger in the hall. He ran, slithering on the parquet Mrs. Baines had polished, to the stairs. Through the drawing room doorway on the first floor, he saw the draped chairs. Even the china clock on the mantel was covered like a canary's cage. As he passed, it chimed the hour, muffled and secret, under the duster. On the nursery table, he found his supper laid out, a glass of milk and a piece of bread and butter, a sweet biscuit and a little cold queen's pudding, without the meringue. Well, he had no appetite. He strained his ears for Mrs. Baines coming, for the sound of voices. But the basement held its secrets. The green baize door shut off that world. He drank the milk and ate the biscuit, but he didn't touch the rest. And presently, he could hear the soft, precise footfalls of Mrs. Baines on the stairs. Oh, she was a good servant. She walked softly. She was a determined woman. She walked precisely. But she wasn't angry when she came in. She was ingratiating as she opened the night nursery door. Did you have a good walk, Master Philip? Pulled down the blinds, laid out his pajamas, came back to clear his supper. Oh, I'm glad Baines found you. Your mother wouldn't have liked you being out alone. She examined the tray. Mm -hmm. Not much appetite, have you, Master Philip? Why don't you try a little of this nice pudding? I'll bring you up some more jam for it. No, no, thank you, Mrs. Baines. Philip said. Well, you ought to eat more, Mrs. Baines said. She sniffed round the room like a dog. You uh, didn't take any pots out of the waste paper basket in the kitchen, did you, Master Philip? No, Philip said. Of course, you wouldn't. I just wanted to make sure, she patted his shoulder, and her fingers flashed to his lapel. She picked off a tiny crumb of pink sugar. Oh, Master Philip, she said, that's why you haven't any appetite. You've been buying sweet cakes. That's not what your pocket money's for. But I didn't, Philip said. I didn't. She tasted the sugar with the tip of her tongue. Don't tell me lies, Master Philip. I won't stand for it any more than your father would. I didn't. I didn't, Philip said. They gave it to me. I, I mean, Baines. But she had pounced on the word they. She had got what she wanted. Oh, there was no doubt about that, even when you didn't know what it was she wanted. 
Philip was angry and miserable and disappointed because he hadn't kept Baines' secret. Oh, Baines oughtn't to have trusted him. Grown-up people should keep their own secrets. And yet, here was Mrs. Baines immediately entrusting him with another. Let me tickle your palm and see if you can keep a secret. But he put his hand behind him. He wouldn't be touched. It's a secret between us, Master Philip. That I know all about them. I suppose she was having tea with him, she speculated. Why shouldn't she? he asked, the responsibility for Baines weighing on his spirit. The idea that he had got to keep her secret when he hadn't kept Baines, making him miserable with the unfairness of life. She was nice. Oh, she was nice, was she? Mrs. Baines said in a bitter voice he wasn't used to. And she's his niece. Oh, so that's what he said. Mrs. Baines struck softly back at him, like the clock under the duster. She tried to be jocular. Oh, the old scoundrel. Don't you tell him I know, Master Philip. She stood very still between the table and the door, thinking very hard, planning something. Promise you won't tell. I'll give you that Meccano set, Master Philip. He turned his back on her. He wouldn't promise, but he wouldn't tell. He would have nothing to do with their secrets, the responsibilities they were determined to lay on him. He was only anxious to forget. He had already received a larger dose of life than he had bargained for, and he was scared. A 2A Meccano set, Master Philip. He never opened his Meccano set again. Never built anything. Never created anything. Died the old dilettante. Sixty years later, with nothing to show, rather than preserve the memory of Mrs. Bain's malicious voice saying, Good night. Her soft, determined footfalls on the stairs to the basement, going down, going down. this.
the sun poured in between the curtains, and Baines was beating a tattoo on a water can. Glory! Glory! Baines said. He sat down on the end of the bed and said, I beg to announce that Mrs. Baines has been called away. Her mother's dying. She won't be back until tomorrow. Why did you wake me up so early? Philip complained. He watched Baines with uneasiness. He wasn't going to be drawn in. He'd learned his lesson. It wasn't right for a man of Baines' age to be so merry. It made a grown person human in the same way that you were human. For if a grown-up could behave so childishly, you were liable to find yourself in their world. It was enough that it came at you in dreams. Oh, the witch at the corner, the man with a knife. So it's very early, he whined, even though he loved Baines. Even though he couldn't help being glad that Baines was happy, he was divided by the fear and the attraction of life. I want to make this a long day, Baines said. This is the best time. He pulled the curtains back. Ooh, it's a bit misty. Huh? The cat's been out all night. There she is, sniffing round the area. Ooh, they haven't taken in any milk at 59. Emma's shaking out the mats at 63, he said. This was what I used to think about on the coast. Somebody shaking mats and the cat coming home. Ah, I can see it today, Baines said, just as if I was still in Africa. Most days, you don't notice what you've got. It's a good life. If you don't weaken. He put a penny on the washstand. When you're dressed, Phil, you run and get a mail from the barrow at the corner. I'll be cooking the sausages. Sausages? Sausages, Baines said. We're going to celebrate today. Oh, he celebrated at breakfast, restless, cracking jokes, unaccountably merry and nervous. It was going to be a long, long day. He kept on coming back to that. For years, he had waited for a long day. He had sweated in the damp coast heat, changed shirts, gone down with fever, lain between the blankets, and sweated, all in the hope of this long day. The cat sniffing round the area, a bit of mist, the mats beaten at 63. He propped the mail in front of the coffee pot and read pieces aloud. He said, Cora Downs been married. <laughs> For the fourth time, he was amused. But it wasn't his idea of a long day. His long day was the park. Watching the riders in the row, seeing Sir Arthur Stillwater pass beyond the rails, he dined with us once in Bow. Up from Freetown, he was governor there. Lunch at the corner house for Philip's sake. He'd have preferred himself a glass of stout and some oysters at the York Bar. The zoo 
the long bus ride home in the last summer light. Oh, the leaves in the green park were beginning to turn, and the motors nuzzled out of Berkeley Street with the low sun gently glowing on their windscreens. Baines envied no one, not Cora Down or Sir Arthur Stillwater or Lord Sanddale, who came out onto the steps of the Army and Navy and then went back again. He hadn't anything to do and might as well look at another paper. I said, don't let me see you touch that man again. Oh, Baines had led a man's life. Everyone on top of the bus pricked his ears when he told Philip all about it. Would you have shot him? Philip asked, and Baines put his head back and tilted his dark, respectable manservant's hat to a better angle as the bus swerved round the artillery memorial. I wouldn't have thought twice about it. I'd have shot to kill, he boasted and the bowed figure went by, the steel helmet, the heavy cloak, the downturned rifle, and the folded hands. Have you got the revolver? <laughs> of course I've got it, Baines said. Don't I need it with all the burglaries there have been? This, oh yes, this was the Baines whom Philip loved. Not Baines singing and carefree, but Baines, responsible. Baines, behind barriers, living his man's life. All the buses streamed from Victoria like a convoy of aeroplanes to bring Baines home with honor. Forty under me. And there, waiting near the area steps, was the proper reward. Love at lighting up time. It's your niece, Philip said, recognizing the white Macintosh, but not the happy, sleepy face. Huh. She frightened him like an unlucky number. He nearly told Baines what Mrs. Baines had said, but he didn't want to bother. He wanted to leave things alone. Why, so it is. Baines said. I shouldn't wonder if she was going to have a bit of supper with us. But he said they'd play a game, pretend they didn't know her, slip down the area steps. And here, Baines said, we are. Lay the table, put out the cold sausages, a bottle of beer, a bottle of ginger pop, a flagon of harvest burgundy. Everyone his own drink, Baines said. Now, run upstairs, Phil, and uh, see if there's been a post. Mm. Philip didn't like the empty house at dusk before the lights went on. He hurried. He wanted to be back with Baines. The hall lay there in quiet and shadow, prepared to show him something he didn't want to see. Well, some letters rustled down, and someone knocked. Open in the name of the Republic. The tumbles rolled. The head bobbed in the bloody basket. Knock, knock. And the postman's footsteps going away. <sighs> Philip gathered the letters. The slit in the door 
was like the grating in a jeweler's window. He remembered the policeman he had seen peer through. He had said to his nurse, What's he doing? And when she said, He's seeing if everything's all right. His brain immediately filled with images of all that might be wrong. He ran to the bay's door and the stairs. The girl was already there, and Baines was kissing her. She leaned breathlessly against the dresser. Here's Emmy, Phil. There's a letter for you, Baines. Oh, Emmy, Baines said. It's from her, but he wouldn't open it. You bet she's coming back. We'll have supper anyway, Emmy said. She can't harm that. Oh, you don't know her, Baines said. Nothing's safe. Damn it, he said. I was a man once. And he opened the letter. Can I start? Philip asked, but Baines didn't hear. He presented, in his stillness, an example of the importance grown-up people attached to the written word. Oh, you had to write your thanks, not wait and speak them, as if letters couldn't lie. But Philip knew better than that, sprawling his thanks across the page to Aunt Alice, who had given him a teddy bear he was too old for. Oh, letters could lie all right, but they made the lie permanent. They lay as evidence against you. They made you meaner than the spoken word. Well, she's not coming back till tomorrow night, Baines said. He opened the bottles. He pulled up the chairs. He kissed Emmy again against the dresser. Oh, you oughtn't to, Emmy said, with the boy here. Oh, he's got to learn, Baines said, like the rest of us. And he helped Philip to three sausages. He only took one himself. He said he wasn't hungry. But when Emmy said she wasn't hungry either, oh, he stood over her and made her eat. He was timid and rough with her and made her drink the harvest burgundy because he said she needed building up. He wouldn't take no for an answer. But when he touched her, his hands were light and clumsy too, as if he was afraid to damage something delicate. Ah, this is better than milk and biscuits, eh? Yes, Philip said, but he was scared. Scared for Baines as much as for himself. He couldn't help wondering at every bite, at every draft of the ginger pop, what Mrs. Baines would say if she ever learnt of this meal. He couldn't imagine it. There was a depth of bitterness and rage in Mrs. Baines you couldn't sound. He said, She won't be coming back tonight. But you could tell by the way they immediately understood him that she wasn't really away at all. She was there in the basement with them, driving them to longer drinks and louder talk, biding her time for the right cutting word. Baines wasn't really happy. He was only watching happiness from close to 
instead of from far away. No, he said. She'll not be back till late tomorrow. He couldn't keep his eyes off happiness. We'd played around as much as other men, but he kept on reverting to the coast, as if to excuse himself for his innocence. He wouldn't have been so innocent if he'd lived his life in London, so innocent when it came to tenderness. Oh, if it was you, Emmy, he said, looking at the white dresser, the scrubbed chairs. This should be like a home. Already the room was not quite so harsh. There was a little dust in corners. The silver needed a final polish. The morning's paper lay untidily on a chair. Yep, you'd better go to bed, Phil. It's, it's been a long day. Now they didn't leave him to find his own way up through the dark, shrouded house. They went with him, turning on lights, touching each other's fingers on the switches. Floor after floor, they drove back the night. They spoke softly among the covered chairs. They watched him undress. They didn't make him wash or clean his teeth. They saw him into bed and lit his nightlight and left his door ajar. He could hear their voices on the stairs, friendly, like the guests he heard at dinner parties when they moved down the hall, saying good night. They belonged. Wherever they were, they made a home. He heard a door open and a clock strike. He heard their voices for a long while, so that he felt they were not far away, and he was safe. The voices didn't dwindle. They simply went out, and he could be sure that they were still somewhere not far from him, silent together in one of the many empty rooms, growing sleepy together as he grew sleepy after the long day. He just had time to sigh faintly with satisfaction because this, too, perhaps, had been life. Before he slept, and the inevitable terrors of sleep came round him, a man with a tricolor hat beat at the door on his majesty's service. A bleeding head lay on the kitchen table in a basket. And the Siberian wolves crept closer. He was bound, hand and foot, and couldn't move. They leapt round him, breathing heavily. He opened his eyes. And Mrs. Baines was there, her gray untidy hair in threads over his face, her black hat askew. A loose hairpin fell on the pillow, and one musty thread brushed his mouth. Where are they? she whispered. 
Where are they? Part four. Philip watched her in terror. Mrs. Baines was out of breath, as if she had been searching all the empty rooms, looking under loose covers. With her untidy gray hair and her black dress buttoned to her throat, her gloves of black cotton, she was so like the witches of his dreams that he didn't dare to speak, and there was a stale smell in her breath. She's here, Mrs. Baines said. You can't deny. She's here. Her face was simultaneously marked with cruelty and misery. She wanted to do things to people, but she suffered all the time. It would have done her good to scream, but she daren't do that. It would warn them. She came ingratiatingly back to the bed where Philip lay rigid on his back and whispered, Now I haven't gotten the mechano set. You shall have it tomorrow, Master Philip. We've got secrets together, haven't we? Now, just tell me where they are. He couldn't speak. Fear held him as firmly as any nightmare. She said, Tell Mrs. Baines, Master Philip, you love your Mrs. Baines, don't you? Oh, that was too much. He couldn't speak, but he could move his mouth in terrified denial wince away from her dusty image. She whispered, coming closer to him, Such deceit! I'll tell your father. I'll settle with you myself when I've found them. You'll smart. I'll see you smart. Then immediately she was still, listening. A board had creaked on the floor below, And a moment later, while she stooped, listening above his bed, there came the whispers of two people who were happy and sleepy together after a long day. The nightlight stood beside the mirror, and Mrs. Baines could see there her own reflection in misery and cruelty, wavering in the glass. Age and dust and nothing to hope for. She sobbed without tears. A dry, breathless sound. Ah, but her cruelty was a kind of pride which kept her going. It was her best quality. She would have been nearly pitiable without it. She went out of the door on tiptoe, feeling her way across the landing, going so softly down the stairs that no one behind a shut door could hear her. Then there was complete silence again. Philip could move. He raised his knees, he sat up in bed, he wanted to die. It wasn't fair, 
The walls were down again between his world and theirs, but this time, oh, it was something worse than merriment that the grown-up people made him share. A passion moved in the house. He recognized, but he could not understand. It wasn't fair. But he owed Baines everything. The zoo, the ginger pop, the bus ride home. Even the supper called to his loyalty. But but he was frightened. He was touching something he touched in dreams. The bleeding head, the wolves, the knock, knock, knock. Life fell on him with savagery. And you couldn't blame him if he never faced it again in 60 years. He got out of bed. Carefully from habit, he put on his bedroom slippers and tiptoed to the door. It wasn't quite dark on the landing below because the curtains had been taken down for the cleaners and the light from the street washed in through the tall windows. Mrs. Baines had her hand on the glass doorknob. She was very carefully turning it. He screamed, Baines! Baines! Mrs. Baines turned and saw him cowering in his pajamas by the banisters. He was helpless, more helpless even than Baines, and cruelty grew at the sight of him and drove her up the stairs. The nightmare was on him again, and he couldn't move. He hadn't any courage left. He couldn't even scream. But the first cry brought Baines out of the best spare bedroom, and he moved quicker than Mrs. Baines. She hadn't reached the top of the stairs before he'd caught her round the waist. She drove her black cotton gloves at his face, and he bit her hand. He hadn't time to think. He fought her like a stranger, but she fought back with knowledgeable hate. Oh, she was going to teach them all, and it didn't really matter whom she began with. They had all deceived her, but the old image in the glass was by her side, telling her she must be dignified she wasn't young enough to yield her dignity. She could beat his face, but she mustn't bite. She could push, but she mustn't kick. Age and dust and nothing to hope for were her handicaps. She went over the banisters in a flurry of black clothes and fell into the hall. She lay before the front door like a sack of coals, which should have gone down the area into the basement. Philip saw. Emmy saw. She sat down, suddenly, in the doorway of the best spare bedroom, with her eyes open, as if she were too tired to stand any longer. Baines went slowly down into the hall. It wasn't hard for Philip to escape, or they'd forgotten him completely. 
He went down the back, the servants' stairs, because Mrs. Baines was in the hall. He didn't understand what she was doing, lying there, like the pictures in a book no one had read to him, the things he didn't understand, terrified him. The whole house had been turned over to the grown-up world. He wasn't safe in the night nursery. Their passions had flooded in. The only thing he could do was to get away by the back stairs and up through the area and never come back. He didn't think of the cold, of the need for food and sleep. For an hour, it would seem quite possible to escape from people forever. He was wearing pajamas and bedroom slippers when he came up into the square. But there was no one to see him. It was that hour of the evening in a residential district when everyone is at the theater or at home. He climbed over the iron railings into the little garden. The plane trees spread their large pale palms between him and the sky. It might have been an illimitable forest into which he had escaped. He crouched behind a trunk and the wolves retreated. It seemed to him between the little iron seat and the tree trunk that no one would ever find him again. A kind of embittered happiness and self-pity made him cry. He was lost. Well, there wouldn't be any more secrets to keep. He surrendered responsibility once and for all. Let grown-up people keep to their world. Oh, and he would keep to his safe in the small garden between the plane trees. Presently, the door of 48 opened, and Baines looked this way and that, and then he signaled with his hand, and Emmy came. It was as if they were only just in time for a train. They hadn't a chance of saying goodbye. She went quickly by, like a face at a window swept past the platform, pale and unhappy, and not wanting to go. Baines went in again and shut the door. The light was lit in the basement, and a policeman walked round the square, looking into the areas. You could tell how many families were at home by the lights behind the first-floor curtains. Philip explored the garden, it didn't take long, a 20-yard square of bushes and plane trees, two iron seats and a gravel path, a padlocked gate at either end, a scuffle of old leaves. But he couldn't stay. Something stirred in the bushes, and two illuminated eyes peered out at him like a Serbian wolf. And he thought, how terrible it would be if Mrs. Baines found him there. Well, he'd have no time to climb the railings. She'd seize him from behind. He left the square at the unfashionable end 
and was immediately among the fish and chip shops, the little stationers selling bagatelle, among the accommodation addresses and the dingy hotels with open doors. There were few people about because the pubs were open, but a blousy woman carrying a parcel called to him across the street and the commissioner outside a cinema would have stopped him if he hadn't crossed the road. He went deeper. You could go farther and lose yourself more completely here than among the plane trees. On the fringe of the square, oh, he was in danger of being stopped and taken back. It was obvious where he belonged. But as he went deeper, he lost the marks of his origin. It was a warm night. Any child in those free-living parts might be expected to play truant from bed. He found a kind of camaraderie, even among grown-up people. He might have been a neighbor's child as he went quickly by, but they weren't going to tell on him. They'd been young once themselves. He picked up a protective coating of dust from the pavements, of smuts from the trains, which passed along the backs in a spray of fire. Once he was caught in a knot of children running away from something or somebody, laughing as they ran. He was whirled with them round a turning and abandoned with a sticky fruit drop in his hand. Oh, he couldn't have been more lost, but he hadn't the stamina to keep on. At first, he had feared that someone would stop him. After an hour, he hoped that someone would. He couldn't find his way back. And in any case, he was afraid of arriving home alone. He was afraid of Mrs. Baines. More afraid than he had ever been. Baines was his friend. Something had happened which gave Mrs. Baines all the power. He began to loiter on purpose, to be noticed. <laughs> but no one noticed him. Families were having a last breather on the doorsteps. The refuse bins had been put out and bits of cabbage stalks soiled his slippers. The air was full of voices, but he was cut off. These people were strangers and would always now be strangers. They were marked by Mrs. Baines, and he shied away from them into a deep class consciousness. He had been afraid of policemen, oh, but now he wanted one to take him home. Even Mrs. Baines could do nothing against a policeman. He sidled past a constable who was directing traffic, but he was too busy to pay him any attention. Philip sat down against a wall and cried. It hadn't occurred to him that that was the easiest way, that all you had to do was to surrender, to show you were beaten, and accept kindness. It was lavished on him at once by two women and a pawnbroker, 
Another policeman appeared, a young man with a sharp, incredulous face. He looked as if he noted everything he saw in pocket books and drew conclusions. A woman offered to see Philip home, but he didn't trust her. She wasn't a match for Mrs. Baines, immobile in the hall. He wouldn't give his address. He said he was afraid to go home. Mm, he had his way. He got his protection. I'll take him to the station, the policeman said, and holding him awkwardly by the hand. He wasn't married. He had his career to make. He led him round the corner, up the stone stairs, into the little, bare, overheated room where justice lived. Part 5 Justice waited behind a wooden counter on a high stool. It wore a heavy mustache. It was kindly and had six children. Three of them nippers like yourself. It wasn't really interested in Philip, but it pretended to be. It wrote the address down and sent a constable to fetch a glass of milk. But the young constable was interested. He had a nose for things. Now your home's on the telephone, I suppose, Justice said. We'll ring them up and say you're safe, and they'll fetch you very soon. What's your name, Sonny? Philip. Your other name? I haven't got another name. He didn't want to be fetched. He wanted to be taken home by someone who would impress even Mrs. Baines. The constable watched him, watched the way he drank the milk, watched him when he winced away from questions. What made you run away? Playing truant, eh? I don't know. Well, you oughtn't to do it, young fellow. Think how anxious your father and mother will be. They are away. Well, your nurse. I haven't got one. Well, who looks after you then? The question went home. Philip saw Mrs. Baines coming up the stairs at him the heap of black cotton in the hall. He began to cry. Oh, now, 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 the sergeant said. Oh, he didn't know what to do. He wished his wife were with him. Even a policewoman might have been useful. Don't you think it's funny, the constable said, that there hasn't been an inquiry? Oh, they think he's tucked up in bed. You are scared, aren't you, the constable said. What scared you? I don't know. Somebody hurt you? No. Always had bad dreams, the sergeant said. Thought the house was on fire, I expect. I've brought up six of them. Rose is due back. She'll take him home. I want to go home with you, Philip said. He tried to smile at the constable, but the deceit was immature and unsuccessful. Ah, I'd better go, the constable said. There may be something wrong. Ah, oh, nonsense, the sergeant said. It's a woman's job. Tact is what you need. Oh, here's Rose. Oh, pull up your stockings, Rose. You're a disgrace to the force. Now I've got a job for you, Rose. She shambled in. Black cotton stockings drooping over her boots. A gawky girl guide manner. A hoarse, hostile voice. 
More tarts, I suppose. No, you've got to see this young man home. She looked at him owlishly. I won't go with her, Philip said. He began to cry again. I don't like her. More of that womanly charm, Rose, the sergeant said. The telephone rang on his desk. He lifted the receiver. What? What's that? He said. Number 48. Oh, you've got a doctor. He put his hand over the telephone mouth. No wonder this nipper wasn't reported, he said. They've been too busy. An accident. Woman slipped on the stairs. Oh, serious? The constable asked. The sergeant mouthed at him. You didn't mention the word death before a child. Didn't he know? He had six of them. You made noises in the throat. You grimaced a complicated shorthand for a word of only five letters anyway. Well, you'd better go after all, he said. Make a report. The doctor's there. Rose shambled from the stove, pink apply-dapply cheeks, loose stockings. She stuck her hands behind her. Her large morgue-like mouth was full of blackened teeth. You told me to take him. And now, just because something interesting... Oh, I don't expect justice from a man. Who's at the house? The constable asked. Oh, the butler. Oh, you don't think, the constable said, that he saw... Oh, trust me, the sergeant said. I've brought up six. Know them through and through. You can't teach me anything about children. He seems scared about something. Dreams, the sergeant said. <sighs> what name? Baines. Hmm. This Mr. Baines, the constable said to Philip. You like him, eh? He's good to you? They were trying to get something out of him. He was suspicious of the whole room full of them. He said, yes, without conviction because he was afraid at any moment of more responsibilities, more secrets. Hmm. And Mrs. Baines? Yes. They consulted together by the desk. Rose was hoarsely aggrieved. She was like a female impersonator. She bore her womanhood with an unnatural emphasis, even while she scorned it. In her creased stockings and her weather-exposed face. The charcoal shifted in the stove. Oh, the room was overheated in the mild late summer evening. A notice on the wall described a body found in the Thames, or rather the body's clothes. Wool vest, wool pants, wool shirt with blue stripes, size 10 boots, blue serge suit worn at the elbows, 15 and a half celluloid collar. They couldn't find anything to say about the body except its measurements. It was just an ordinary body. Come along, the constable said. He was interested. He was glad to be going, but he couldn't help being embarrassed by his company. A small boy in pajamas? His nose smelt something. He didn't know what. 
but he smarted at the sight of the amusement they caused. The pubs had closed, and the streets were full again of men making as long a day of it as they could. He hurried through the less frequented streets, chose the darker pavements, wouldn't loiter, and Philip wanted more and more to loiter, pulling at his hand, dragging with his feet. He dreaded the sight of Mrs. Baines waiting in the hall. Oh, he knew now that she was dead. The sergeant's mouthing had conveyed that. But she wasn't buried. She wasn't out of sight. He was going to see a dead person in the hall when the door opened. The light was on in the basement, and to his relief the constable made for the area steps. Perhaps he wouldn't have to see Mrs. Baines at all. The constable knocked on the door because it was too dark to see the bell, and Baines answered. He stood there in the doorway of the neat, bright basement room, and you could see the sad, complacent, plausible sentence he had prepared. Whither? At the sight of Philip. He hadn't expected Philip to return like that. In the policeman's company. He had to begin thinking all over again. Oh, he wasn't a deceptive man. If it hadn't been for Emmy, he would have been quite ready to let the truth lead him where it would. Mr. Baines, the constable asked. He nodded. He hadn't found the right words. He was daunted by the shrewd, knowing face, the sudden appearance of Philip there. This little boy from here, Yes, Baines said. Philip could tell that there was a message he was trying to convey. But he shut his mind to it. Oh, he loved Baines. But Baines had involved him in secrets, in fears he didn't understand. That was what happened when you loved. You got involved. And Philip extricated himself from life, from love. From Baines. The, the doctor's here, Baines said, and he nodded at the door, moistened his mouth, kept his eyes on Philip, begging for something like a dog you can't understand. There's nothing to be done. She slipped on these stone basement stairs. I was in here. I heard her fall. He wouldn't look at the notebook at the constable's spidery writing, which got a terrible lot on one page. Did the boy see anything? Oh, he, he can't have done. I thought he was in bed. Hadn't he better go up? It's a shocking thing. Oh, Baines said, losing control. Uh, a shocking thing for a child. Oh, she's through there, the constable asked. Oh, I haven't moved her an inch, Baines said. Well, he'd better then uh, go up the area and through the hall, Baines said. And again, he begged dumbly like a dog. One more secret. Keep this secret. Do this for old Baines. He won't ask for another. Come along, 
the constable said. I'll see you up to bed. Now, you're a gentleman. You must come in the proper way through the front door like the master should. Or will you go along with him, Mr. Baines, while I see the doctor? Oh, yes, Baines said. I'll go. He came across the room to Philip, begging, begging all the way with his old, soft, stupid expression. This is Baines, the old coaster. What about a palm oil chop, eh? A man's life. Forty under him. Never used a gun. The messages flickered out from the last posts at the border, imploring, beseeching, reminding, this is your old friend Baines. What about Levenses? A glass of ginger pop won't do you any harm. Sausages, a long day. But the wires were cut. The messages just faded out into the vacancy of the scrubbed room in which there had never been a place where a man could hide his secrets. Well, come along, Phil. It's bedtime. We'll just go up the steps. Tap, tap, tap at the telegraph. You may get through. You can't tell. Somebody may mend the right wire. And in the front door. No, Philip said. No, I won't go. You can't make me go. I'll fight. I won't see her. The constable turned on them quickly. Well, what's that? Why won't you go? She's in the hall, Philip said. I know she's in the hall and she's dead and I won't see her. You, you moved her then, the constable said to Baines. All the way down here? Why, you've been lying, eh? That means that you had to tidy up. Were you alone? Emmy, Philip said. Emmy. He wasn't going to keep any more secrets. He was going to finish once and for all with everything, with Baines and Mrs. Baines and the grown-up life beyond him. It's all Emmy's fault, he protested with a quaver which reminded Baines that, after all, he was only a child. Oh, it had been hopeless to expect. Help there. He was a child. He didn't understand what it all meant. He couldn't read this shorthand of terror. He'd had a long day and he was tired out, you could see him, dropping asleep where he stood against the dresser, dropping back into the comfortable nursery peace. You couldn't blame him. When he woke in the morning, he'd hardly remember a thing. Out with it, the constable said, addressing Baines with professional ferocity. Who is she? Just as the old man, 60 years later, startled his secretary, his only watcher, asking, Who is she? Who is she? Dropping lower and lower to death, passing on the way, perhaps, the image of Baines, 
veins. Hopeless veins. Letting his head drop. Veins. Coming clean. Good night. Thank you.